Hi, this is Class Session 32. Today we discuss Merry and Pippin in Isengard, the conflict between Gandalf and Saruman, and the Palantir, with a brief glance forward at Frodo and Gollum. For some reason, Book 3 has induced both me and my students to make an increased number of direct comparisons between the books and the films, so I hope you can bear with me on that. I do find contrast with the movies very useful at times, as it helps to draw attention to some of the choices that Tolkien made in writing his story, which we might not have noticed so easily otherwise. Anyway, here we go. <laughs> Those are less fun than multivariable calculus, I have to say. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> I would like to begin with uh, uh, talking about what we didn't quite get to last time, which was Merry and Pippin at the Gates of Isengard. Um, what do you notice there? What, what seems emphasized... Uh, to you in that in in that particular scene, and given all that, I mean, we've 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 been looking at the development of certain patterns over the course of these books so far. What you know, in in light of the other things that we've read, what jumps out at you about the encounter between Gandalf and Theoden uh, and the companions with Merry and Pippin at the, on, at the ruined gates of Isengard? What do you think, Jordan? They don't seem to be taking this whole War of the Ring business very seriously. <clears throat> I, I love the comment about you know how uh, how Mary tries to cover that over, right? My companion, who alas is overcome with weariness, right? Who's he's fallen asleep? Yeah, yeah. They, he, he he tries to welcome the Lord of the Mark with fitting words, um, but it's hard to get around the fact that the fancy-sounding speech, which remember back from the Prancing Pony. In the Shire, they would have called a few very suitable words. Um, although they sound kind of suitable to the occasion, are still kind of in uh, conflict with, or at least in tension with, the whole atmosphere of their little gathering as they're, uh, as Gimli describes it, lying at their ease and feasting and smoking. You refer to the more precious than wings than him. That's yes for Pippin. Yes, uh, he keeps he keeps his uh, spare. He brought a spare pipe, uh, even which he has kept with him through thick and thin. He's lost everything else. I mean, remember this is like the they've they've been you know almost buried in the snow, almost lost in Moria. Uh, you know, left behind all of his baggage at Parthgalen and captured by the orcs. And but 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 he still got his spare pipe, right? Yeah, what does that show us? What, 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 what can, I mean, certainly one thing, one thing that Gandalf himself draws attention to is sort of some things about the nature of Hobbit culture that are reflected in this moment. Uh, you set a Hobbit up with some pipe weed and something to eat, and they're good to go. <laughs> and anywhere, right? No matter where it is. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, what else? What else? There? Also shows that, you know, Isengard has really been... Conquered, conquered if, you know, the hobbits are just sitting there chilling, you know? Yes. That's, um, that's what Pippin emphasizes, right? Here you see us on a field of victory amidst the plunder of armies and wonder why, how we came by a few well-earned comforts. Right? He characterized it as, no, we're, it's not inappropriate that we're lounging here. We're lounging here because we are the confident conquerors. Uh, and it is a sign that there is no one to threaten us. And certainly... That is one of the things which makes it funny, right? I mean, this is funny in several different ways, this scene. One, because of the, the 
disjunction between what they expect and what they see. Remember, they have marched, not Gandalf, but the rest of them have come in expecting to find the stronghold of Saruman that they are somehow going to be trying to assault. And instead, they find the place already completely ruined and they have no idea how that happened. Uh, So that is already a surprise to them. So they don't expect to find a field of victory. They expect to find the stronghold of their enemy. And then all that they can see... (laughs) are these two hobbits lying there like they did it all themselves, right? Well, we took care of Isengard for you, and here we are waiting to greet you when you come, and that's funny, right? I mean, these two little guys who obviously could have done nothing of the kind, right? So that's another source of of the comedy there. Um, Remember the the caution that Gandalf gives to Theoden? The way in which Gandalf contextualizes this scene within Hobbit tendencies and Hobbit culture. And again, kind of amusingly, he characterizes it as, as, as danger. He says to Theoden what in a wholly different context Theoden might have expected to have said to him when he approached the gates of, of Saruman. You do not know your peril, Theoden is what Gandalf says to him, but in a completely different context. Do you have it there, Jordan? Yeah. These hobbits will sit on the edge of ruin and discuss the pleasures of the table or the small doings of their fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers and remoter cousins to the ninth degree if you encourage them with undue patience. Undue patience, yes. Yes. You don't know your peril. These hobbits will sit on the edge of ruin and talk about these small things. It's just like hobbits. He interrupts them launching into the history of smoking and the discovery of pipeweed. How old Toby came by the plant? That's a quotation. Well, a future quotation. Uh, that line verbatim is in the Mary's description of the history of pipeweed, which he will later go on to publish, uh, and which is given to us in part uh, in the introduction to the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, that's what they're kind of launching into here. What does this show us about hobbits? What, what, what does Gandalf understand about hobbits, and what, what, is, he, what is he emphasizing to us here? Mark? Well, I was just thinking to myself that this is not the first time that we've seen this behavior. Um, they are, and I just think when they were captured by the orcs, they take a moment to have, have a bite, yes. a moment to, to sit and think, and then even when they're running through Fangorn in a panic, they're like, well, let's, let's stop for a minute and have a drink. And I think it kind of shows with hobbits that they will always take that moment to just kind of sit and appreciate the moment. And then, okay, then we continue. But let's make sure we have that moment again. Yeah, it's part of that. We were told way again, way back in that prologue about the resiliency of hobbits. And this is clearly part of that resiliency. Um, remember what Aragorn says, and you're right to recall this, Marta, what Aragorn says was really most like a hobbit, most, most hobbit-like about Merry and Pippin's escape from the orcs is the fact, is, is you know, Legolas comments on the fact that it's very Hobbit-like that in the middle of their escape, in the midst of an open battle, they would stop and have a snack, right? Aragorn qualifies that a bit. He's like, well, remember, they weren't really in the open. It was dark and everything, so it's not like they're actually just sitting, like, waving at the orcs and, and munching. Um, it wasn't quite that bad. 
But what he does say is really characteristic of a hobbit is that although they ran off with no gear and no supplies or anything, both of them had Lembus in their pockets. Like they carry food on them at all times just in case. And that's, it's the only thing they carried on them at all times. Um, that's characteristic of hobbits. Um, and so we, we can certainly see a similarity there. Even in the conversation, the style of conversation that Merry and Pippin have, I mean, when they first regain consciousness, being thrown on the ground by their orc captors who are standing over them and talking about possibly indulging in the entertainment of torturing them to death, uh, the comments that they're exchanging are, are, you know, the first thing that Mary says to Pippin, so you came on this little expedition too? Where do we get bed and breakfast? Um, The kind of this pervasive, persistent, resilient even, lightheartedness and ease of the hobbits, we see them at their ease and comfortable at the ruined gates of Isengard. Um, Because hobbits can be comfortable and do get comfortable everywhere and anywhere. It's part of who, it's part of what makes them resilient. Um, Now, what else? Other thoughts? I mean, they're just at home, wherever they go. They are homely creatures, not only in the sense of valuing home and quiet pleasures and things, but it's like they bring that with them where they go, wherever it be. Um, One could say, of course, a a possible counterpoint to Pippin's about being on a field of victory amidst a plunder of armies is still that's not how other people carry on on a field of victory amidst the plunder of armies. The plunder of armies, for most people, does not mean salted pork. I mean, it doesn't mean, like, the, I mean, the, the, they're happy about all the food that they've found and the prize of the, of, of, of the treasure, pipeweed, right? Most people would have probably been focused on other things in the looting process. Uh, probably the wreckage of Isengard might contain something which other people would consider more valuable than foodstuffs and pipeweed, um, but not to the hobbits, right? This is, you know, look at the spread, the plunder of armies, right? I mean, again, even that characterization shows us what they value and what they're about. Um, quickly, what do you notice about the Ents in Isengard? The attack of the Ents, the story of the assault of Isengard by the Ents. What does Tolkien emphasize there? There. They get really angry when, uh, while their comrades is in trouble. Um, I can't remember the name of the ant that died, but they got really angry when while, while they're always killing. Beachbone, yeah, who's, who's, who's burned up. Yeah, yeah. Um, they emphasize, for instance, that Quickbeam is a gentle creature, um, but he hates Saruman all the more for that. Um, they consider... His comparative hastiness understandable when they hear about how the rowan trees that he loved have been cut down by the orcs. Um, They are appropriately vengeful. Their vengefulness is, it seems, a good thing. They want vengeance. The Huorns really want vengeance. Their business is with orcs. They go off and follow the army. And they are, of course, going to be the forest in the valley uh, on the morning after the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, 
they are primarily activated by their defensiveness, the defense of their homeland, which has been attacked, the defense of each other when they are, when they are getting attacked. Those are the things that motivate them most. Erin? Um, I really like the emphasis that Treebeard, and it gets mentioned a few times, but on cleaning out Isengard, especially in releasing the river, and like when um, Treebeard watches Wormtum swim to the tower, and he goes into the water to watch him swim across, and then he says... There is no clean water down here for an to drink or bathe in. And he yes. has to go somewhere else. And it's just so dirty, specifically around the Tower of Isengard, that he doesn't really want to be there. Yeah, he even warns Marion Pippin when he's going to flood the place. Water will come through here, and it will be foul water at first. Uh, yeah, and he even warns Wormtongue, the water is dirty, but that won't hurt you. Right? Yeah, yeah, I mean this... And of course, there does seem to be the implication that... I mean, there probably is some actual waste, but um, but but it's. I mean, it's Isengard is itself a taint on this place, and so yeah, it is. What he is doing is a cleansing. What's the final step in the cleansing from Treebeard's perspective? When will the cleansing of Isengard be done? Is it that when the trees come back? Yes, wild trees are coming back here, and it's going to be renamed the Watchwood. They will call it. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I agree. That is certainly, um, if you ask Treebeard, it seems like what he's doing there, it's not destroying Isengard. He's cleansing it. Um, and I, I, I think, I think it's a, it's an excellent point. Brittany? Um, I thought it really interesting that one time the ants get so worked up and so just angry that they, um, just get very disorganized and people scared that they're just all rushing to their death and have to step back. Yes. Here's where you see being non-hasty is a real advantage, right? Treebeard is the one who keeps his head and keeps and gets the ants to stop going wild as they are because they can't damage Orthanc, the tower. Um, and yeah, they're actually harming themselves, which shows the, the rage of the ants, the, the sheer ferocity of the ants is not always a good thing is not always i mean certainly not always successful um it seems like it seems like the 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 need is just get them roused and worked up and pointed in the right direction and everything is going to be good but it's but it's not just that um there also has to be a limitation on that some amount of non-hastiness is is definitely a necessary thing Jordan? An interesting tie between this topic and the last one I found, when we were describing their battle, he describes they tore the stone up like Red Cross. <laughs> yes. It's a horrifying image when you think of what happened to a wall, which is like a bit like that. But yes. It's also very hobbit like in describing this horrible, like, living siege engine. Yes, yes. It's kind of like what I would do to bread right now, even though I've just had two meals. Yeah, I, they, yeah, they definitely, it's, it's, it is a very hobbit like image in that way. Yeah. Uh, in that same way, it seems that the power of the Ents is the power yeah. of nature, and Pippin describes it as um, uh, the work of nature of a, a hundred years all packed into a few moments. Yeah, and, yeah. And you know, just uh, that it's something sort of inevitable that's been expressed <coughs> and set into work. Yeah, I agree. It's not... <coughs> Perhaps we might think of the, the 
comments in a different context that Tolkien made about about elves or fairies and on fairy stories being not supernatural but more natural than usual, and the ants certainly seem to be in that same direction. They are not bringing to bear supernatural force upon Isengard. They are bringing, I don't know what, hyper-natural, accelerated natural force uh, on it. Uh, that's, and I agree that that's a really important thing. This is not something magical acting. This is natural force unleashed. Speaking of natural force, un, natural force unleashed, um, I got I, I, I have another opportunity to compliment the movies, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. Um, I really like. Which is not at all in the books, but I really like the the description in the movie of the of the dam and the breaking of the dam leading to the flood of Isengard. Of course, that's not how it happens in the book. Treebeard just diverts the river uh, into the valley and 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 floods it. But I, that that visual image, I think, is a very um, a very effective one of Saruman having dammed up the river, having tried to hold back the natural course of things and the ants sort of, uh, you know, calamitously, you know, bringing the, the force of nature back in with the, with the flooding through the release of the waters from the dam. I think it's actually, it, it captures really, really well uh, in one really concrete visual image um, what, what Treebeard and the ants really are doing. I, I, I really like that. Um, It is my goal at least to begin to get to Frodo and Gollum by the end of class today. And so, therefore, I'm going to push ahead. Two more things I want to touch on, that is the confrontation with Saruman uh, and the uh, Pippin's encounter with the Palantir. Um, so first, the voice of Saruman. Here again, we get another plainly, no question about it, magical battle, Right? Saruman versus Gandalf. What does it look like? Marta? Well, it's, it's funny that you're like, it's definitely a magical battle, but they're really just speaking with one another. Yeah. It's um, actually, going back to the movies, I think the Saruman in the book is so much different than what's in the movie. There's, it's a lot more cunning and, and subtle. And yes. It's a lot more wily. Yeah, and it's... I, I was thinking, as I was reading through it this time, I was thinking a lot about Christopher Lee, who plays Saruman in the movies. And on the one hand, he, Christopher Lee, has an amazing voice. I mean, I could listen to Christopher Lee uh, talk all day. He actually uh, reads the unabridged audio recording of The Children of Hurin, which just came out a couple years ago. And I actually find it really hard to listen to because I have a hard time following the story because I'm just like, you know, like... (laughs) enjoying Christopher Lee's voice. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. I was supposed to be paying attention. I actually kind of struggle with it a little bit. Um, his voice is so resonant and so incredible. But it's very different from the voice of Saruman. So, I mean, I'm, on the one hand, I'm really glad that they cast somebody as Saruman who has an amazing voice, but his voice isn't like that in the book. What's his voice like? What is the, what is the quality of Saruman's voice in... In the description that Tolkien gives of it. Yeah, yeah. It has a very soothing voice, very soft, and you know, not. That's why can't we just say, Yes. If anything, it's seductive. More, it's not, there's authority to it. Um, but yes, it's 
It's lulling. It's soothing. Um, it's really attractive. Therefore, I, Christopher Lee's voice sounds so authoritative, doesn't it? I mean, and there is authority. Authority is a really important dynamic in Saruman's approach, but it's not just raw power that he is unleashing. It's not just, I command you to obey me and you must. What's his approach? Still about power. What does he do? We see him approach two different people in two different ways. Theoden first, Gandalf second. Yeah, Chantel? Um, it's that he's getting them to act um, and to think as though they're acting on their own ideas. Like he didn't put the idea to do whatever into their head. Yeah, yeah. He, part of the spell of his words is to create this like context for it, to prompt them to respond in a particular way, but it is about their own response, right? It's about how they... There's like th- th- that description, for instance, about how everything the voice said sounded wise and created the desire in you, when you hear it, to seem wise yourself by quick agreement with it. Right? It's not just, oh, I am so overwhelmed by the awesomeness and wisdom of what this says you know, that I find myself compelled to agree, but rather I find a desire stirred within me voluntarily to agree. Um, it induces, instead of compelling, response. Again, it's, it's seducing. It's not, this, is, this, is, this is not rape. This is seduction. Um, that's, the, that's the effect of his voice. Yeah, Travis? Doesn't that mean that uh, Saruman's voice is pretty much the exact same thing as the ring? That he uses like ration and logic to make you want to do these things, even though it's also a type of domination? Yes. Now, I think... I would say there are definitely some similarities. The primary difference I would point to is that Saruman is ultimately trying to get you to submit to him personally. Um, Whereas the ring is trying to get you to, in the end, to assert dominion yourself. Um... So I think their ends are demonstrably different, but their means are kind of similar. I agree. Um, the ring is a little bit, is, is even subtler. Subtler because it's not like a person standing there speaking to you. Um, but you can certainly see in the ring um, a kind of extreme example, Chantel, of what you were describing, right? That working on you to make, a, make your own choice to respond, right? The ring when the ring is influencing you or controlling you, you're not even realizing that it's not you driving the bus anymore. Um, Until maybe if you're really fortunate and good like Boromir after the fact. What else? Other thoughts? Marta, go ahead. Well, just, um, I guess, to to go to the part where the the voice breaks, the spell fades. You know, Gandalf has a lot of power when he says words, like when he was doing the, the whole Balrog said all those powerful words, but but I really, my favorite part of this whole thing is then Gandalf laughs, and his, his Gandalf's laugh has power, too. Yes. Yes, Gandalf's laugh 
breaks the power of Saruman's voice effortlessly and for everybody. Everybody wakes up when he laughs. Good. Elise? Um, well, also, when he's talking, he has to have, everything else has to be said. So when Gimli, first when he's talking to the writers, um, Gimli breaks in and Saruman's valve breaks for a second. So he has to have like complete control. Yes. And when people, he doesn't respond well to the people who answer, to the people who get uppity, right? Gimli gets uppity and Amir gets uppity at one point. And both of them, he smacks down. And in smacking them down, breaks it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Gandalf characterizes this later. He says, basically, he's trying to do too much at once. He can't be both tyrant and counselor. So he's, he's trying to use persuasion Oh, I'm not forcing you. I'm just, you're making your own decision. But don't you really want to agree with me? You know you really want to agree with me, right? But you can't do that and assert dominion at the same time. His ends don't really serve his means well anymore. At least not perfectly. And we can see the friction there that Gandalf points to. I want to look at Gandalf's speech. In 569... He commands Saruman to come back. And we see Saruman dragged back as if against his will. Well, it's not as if. It is against his will. I did not give you leave to go. I have not finished. You have become a fool, Saruman, and yet pitiable. You might still have turned away from falling and evil and been of service, but you choose to stay and gnaw the ends of your old plots. Stay then. But I warn you, you will not easily come out again. Not unless the dark hands of the east stretch out to take you, Saruman, he cried, and uh, to take you, period. Saruman, he cried, and his voice grew in power and authority. Behold, I am not Gandalf the Grey, whom you betrayed. I am Gandalf the White, who has returned from death. You have no color now, and I cast you from the order and from the council. Saruman, your staff is broken. What do you notice about Gandalf's speech? Tell me what's important here. Gandalf's will has complete <clears throat> dominance and control, and he's completely confident in his ability to exert mastery over Saruman. Um, you know, he's, he tries to walk away from him, Gandalf's like, no, you're going to come back here, and he does. <laughs> yes. Uh, I like, Gandalf uses the imperative voice. Saruman, come back. Uh, when you just paraphrased it, you changed it to the indicative. Saruman, you're going to come back. He doesn't do it there, but he does that everywhere else. And that, I think, is really interesting. Notice everything other than Saruman come back is not a command, but a mere observation of fact. You have no color now. I cast you from the, from, from the order and from the council. FYI, your staff is broken. This is not, I now break your staff, I command your staff to break. Just, by the way, your staff happens to be, I mean, it's, these are statements of fact when Gandalf says it. And when you think about it, I, I mean, I agree, Kelly, with your emphasis. That's stronger than issuing commands, which may or may not be obeyed. Uh, he is completely confident in the truth of what he is saying there. Eric, what were you going to say? I mean, they seem opposed to each other, but it's just not that Gandalf defeats him here. It's that Saruman defeats himself really by submitting himself to evil and abandoning the light. So Gandalf is merely just Yes, good. Part of what he says, it's not, I am now breaking your staff. 
You have no color now. Why does he have no color now? He broke the white. Saruman was the one who broke white, remember? And, And became, now I am Saruman of many colors. In which case, it is no longer white. You don't have a color anymore. Thanks to yourself, exactly as you say. You know, he's not, this is not, I am now, as of this moment, stripping you of your color. I am merely observing what you already did. Casting him from the council? I mean, this is not exactly an expulsion which should come as a surprise. He cast himself from the order and from the council through his actions. So these these are statements of fact. Gandalf has reason to be confident in what he's saying. His staff had not been physically broken. And he physically breaks as soon as Gandalf says this. But, uh, but his power had been when he left the path of wisdom previously. Elise? Yeah, I think it's like one thing about um, in like all of Gandalf's speeches like when he was talking to Thayden versus where I'm coming now when he's talking to Saruman is that, like you said, he does just state the fact, like he doesn't try to deceive or lie, which is why he's able to, he doesn't like, he sort of persuades, you know, that people do stuff, but not against their will. Which I think is why his words usually overcome all everyone else's like foreign tongues and charm. Yeah. I think that's a really excellent point. We can see a lot of similarities between his defeat of Saruman and his healing of Theoden. Right? How does he heal Theoden? Uh, come to your doors and look abroad. It's not that dark, is it? Hmm, no, it's not that dark. Nor does age lie so heavily on you as some would have you think. And he stands up and he's like, oh, yeah, come to think of it, I don't actually need that cane, do I? Gandalf didn't do anything. He just pointed out the truth, showed him the truth. And the truth for Theoden is that things are actually bright and there really is hope and he is strong. The truth for Saruman is different. Uh, uh, have, have we wrecked Isengard? No, 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 no. You wrecked Isengard. Have I stripped you from your, of your color? No, you stripped yourself of your color. I'm just, I'm just saying what is and describing what, what, what happens. And there's power in truth. There is more power, there's more real authority in the indicative than in the imperative in that way. Because it's truth. It's truth. Whereas Wormtongue, the spell of Wormtongue, was also the misapplication, the twisted, the untrue application of the indicative. You are old, you are weak, things are dark, things are hopeless. No, actually, those things are untrue. And when you bring true indicative statements against untrue ones, truth wins, and it's not a big fight. The healing of Theoden, kind of unspectacular. I can understand why they made it a little more theatrical in the movie, because it wouldn't have looked like much. I mean, how anticlimactic would it have seemed? You know, it's like he just stands up and is like, oh, yeah, I feel better. <laughs> but that's what happens, right? And similarly, here, I, I, I can understand why Saruman throws a fireball down at Gandalf in the movie, and Gandalf is there like, I am unhurt by your fireball, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, okay. That's kind of, in one sense, what happened. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's, 
that's, that's important stuff. Um, the Palantir. Pippin has been saved. Pippin and all of them have been saved, by fortune as it's called. Right? One interesting parallel, not back to the Silmarillion this time, but here back to something previously in the Fellowship of the Ring. This is Pippin the second foolish stone, right? Think for a second about the similarities between those events. It's the second time now that Pippin sneaks up in the middle of the night when everyone else is sleeping and does something with a stone which draws the attention of some huge powerful enemy to them exactly where they are and rouses them against them. And both times, it works out really, really well. By fortune, as it's called. Again, really, really well if you can count Gandalf dying as, in the long run, really good. Which it kind of is. Um, what else struck you about the Palantir? Derek? Worm, worm tongue just threw it not knowing what it was and like just didn't even know who he was throwing it at. Yes. Yes. Uh, what do we learn from that? What's the take-home lesson of Wormtongue throwing the Palantir down? You're not meddling the affairs of wizards. <laughs> <laughs> Wormtongue has certainly not learned that lesson. Right? Needs to hang out with Sam more. Who oft repeats that. What else? I mean, it seems kind of strange, right? I mean, as Gandalf points out soon, I don't think there's anything, uh, you know, more important that could have been hucked out the window at us. I mean, had we gone in there and searched the whole place, this is probably like the number one thing we would have wanted. And here it gets chucked out the window to us. And it's not just, hey, isn't this fortuitous? I mean, yes, it is fortuitous. But there's more also than that. Why does Wormtongue chuck it? What does it tell us that Wormtongue, Wormtongue chucks this? This would not have been Saruman's idea of all of the potential missiles in the, in the tower. This is probably the last thing he would have chucked out a window. So why would it occur to Wormtongue to do this? And it tells us that the people that adhere to Saruman are ignorant. That yes. Wormtongue doesn't know what it is. Yes. Saruman works alone. Obviously, Wormtongue has no idea what this thing is. He just says, hey, look, big, heavy... <laughs> Eminently throwable ball. This looks like a great missile. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, ch- I'm gonna chuck this. Down. It's probably not important. I'm gonna, I'm gonna chuck this down. Which he does, obviously doesn't know. He doesn't have the faintest idea of what this thing is. If Saruman, you know, act, even the people who are working with him, you know, I mean, if he would have a little confidence in his people, you know, let them in on things. But of course, that's not what he does. Don't trouble to say we. Right? Only one hand at a time can, reel the, can wield the one. Um, that's the spirit of Isengard as it is the spirit of Mordor. Everyone for themselves. Evil people are always everybody for themselves. Um, and here we see, oh, guess what? That ends up you know, coming back and backfiring on him. In a pretty significant way here, like it always does. Elise? Well, the same thing kind of happened with the Right. Of course, Grishnok's desire to set up on his own uh, 
is what undermines everything. Now, they, the rest of the orcs wouldn't have escaped anyway, um, but what facilitates their escape is the selfish action by Grishnak, right? Pardon? Well, you can kind of see again another difference between Gandalf and Saruman because Saruman doesn't tell anyone who the Palantir is, and yet in the next chapter, or the next part of this chapter, when um, Pippin and Gandalf are writing to Minas Tirith, Gandalf tells Pippin everything. That he would want to know, and Pippin even's like, "Well, how long is this going to last?" I should ask him every question <laughs> right. ever in this moment. And I think it's partially because Gandalf realizes that he should be more open about these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that sense of Gandalf. Gandalf blames himself a little bit for what happened, right? And of course, Pippin. He tells Pippin, "Next time you feel this way, tell me. Tell me. Don't keep it to yourself." But. But yeah, Gandalf himself also seems to learn. And that's the thing that, that Pippin and Mary are talking about, that Pippin emphasizes with Mary when Pippin is, want, is, is desiring the Palantir and is saying to, to Mary, well, Gandalf, if he's changed, he's closer than ever. That's all. Like, he's so secretive. He never tells anybody anything. And Mary's like, no, actually, he told me quite a lot while we were traveling today. Um, but Pippin, Pippin won't have it. Yeah, I mean, I agree that I think we, we can see that... Uh, that being emphasized as the chapter goes on. Eric? Well, yeah, I was going to make a similar parallel between Wormtongue and Pippin and how they both approach the, the Palantir with, you know, ignorance because the, the wizards don't tell them either of them, but they just work out in reverse ways how Wormtongue, you know, <coughs> tries to use it for bad purposes and ends up giving it away. And then Pippin, uh, he, he doesn't really know what it's going to do, but it ends up working out for all of them, really. So. Yes, yes. It's good to be on the good side of the luck when it comes to those things. But yeah, I agree. I agree. Jordan? One thing I find particularly interesting is Pippin's logic when he takes it. <clears throat> no, I felt like to put this back, but you go himself and get yourself in quite a full trouble, put it back quick. But he found now that his knees quaked, and he did not go and dare go near enough to the wizard to reach the bundle. I'll never get it back now without waking him. That's yeah. how I'm going to come. So I may as well have a look at the first. Not just either, though. Yeah. It sounds a lot like a certain familiar voice which originated in what he reaches through the Palantir. Yeah, I agree. Um, the, what happens to Pippin, and especially, I, I absolutely agree with you, that moment of rationalization sounds a lot like the rest. This is the voice of Sauron itself, because his malice poured into the wing. He just encountered Sauron. Yeah, and this, of course, before that, but he does see something briefly in the ball. Um, the first time when he's holding it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that we can see that. Though also, I would, I would think that there is also a, a more indirect reason why this process sounds similar to the ring process. Um, that's also just kind of how temptation works. Um, the ring is like temptation with a will and a voice, which is deliberately manipulating you in ways which some of the people, anyway, upon whom it is acting, recognize is merely a temptation. Um, but that voice is going to sound like any temptation to do something you know you shouldn't, which is exactly how Gandalf characterizes it. You know, Pippin says, I didn't know what I was doing, and Gandalf says, yes, you did. Brittany? Um, it's like... 
Because it also says, um, he bent low over it looking like a greedy child stooping over a bowl of food in a corner away from the others. Yes, good. A little child convinced myself that it's okay. <laughs> yes, but betraying even by his body language that he knows it's not okay and he's trying to conceal it so nobody takes it away from him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that he's pointing to a more universal thing here. Now, Jordan, I'm not disagreeing with you. There is a Sauron connection, and it is, I think, suggested by the glimpse that he got in the ball the first time that Mordor itself, that Sauron himself is kind of drawing him back to look at it. That seems to have operated on Saruman as well. Um, and it's one other thing, of course, that's, in, that's interesting about this passage is the new glimpse that Gandalf gets into the process by which Saruman fell. Um, emphasizing how dangerous are, is an art that's, that is beyond us, right? Um, he tampered with something that he shouldn't have tampered with. Who made the Palantir? The Palantiri, I should say. You use the correct plural. No, no, no. sorry. Maybe Feanor. Probably Feanor himself. Uh, in in the Silmarillion, the we we see the Palantiri getting shipped over. Uh, they're one of the gifts that the elves give to the to the Numenorians with the white tree. Um, yeah, probably Feanor himself made made the Palantiri. And that's what tempts Gandalf about it. He would really like to look into the Palantir, look back over time and space, and get a glimpse into the, to, to see the hands and mind of, the, the, the unspeakable hands and mind of Feanor at work. Gandalf thinks that would be pretty cool, but he's glad he can't be tempted. One last Palantir-related point, and then we're going to get five whole minutes to talk about Frodo and Gollum, and that is Aragorn. Uh, this is our last glimpse of Aragorn before we meet him again in book five, uh, at the beginning of The Return of the King. And the last we see of him is, uh, you know, we remember his performance in the Battle of Helm's Deep, which was pretty impressive. Aragorn's stature is growing, um, and more and more he is sort of revealing his power and his nature. Uh, and he uh, comes, up, comes across kind of impressively at the end here. This is on 580. When Gandalf recognizes it, um, Gandalf asks Aragorn to watch af- to look after the Palantir. Will you, Aragorn, take the Orthanc stone and guard it? This is page five eighty. It, it is a dangerous charge. Aragorn's response: dangerous indeed, but not to all. There is one who may claim it by right. For this assuredly is the Palantir of Orthanc from the treasury of Elendil, set here by the kings of Gondor. Now my hour draws near. I will take it. All right. (laughs) I mean, that's uh, kind of breaking the conversational tone of the moment there. Wasn't expecting an oration, but okay. And Gandalf looks at Aragorn, and then to the surprise of the others, I don't know what exactly they were expecting. Uh, Gandalf to say in response to that, but what would you say in response to that? Anyway, to the surprise of the others, he lifted the covered stone and bowed as he presented it. Receive it, Lord, in earnest of other things that shall be given back. But if I may counsel you in the use of your own, do not use it yet. Be wary. Still, Aragorn is still in high mode in his, when have I been hasty or unwary, who have waited and prepared so many long years? Uh, 
Never yet. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 a little, it's a little funny. I mean, it is a little awkward. But it's, here is Aragorn. Again, remember that moment in the boat going through the Argonoth, right? When they look back and Strider the Ranger is nowhere to be seen. And instead, it's Aragorn, son of Arathorn. He's in total Aragorn, son of Arathorn mode here. Uh, I am like, doing his Argonoth impression, uh, receiving, receiving the Palantir. And... Just like Gandalf did on the bridge of Khazad-dûm and does before Saruman, I am Gandalf the White. Or I am not Gandalf the Grey whom you betrayed. I am Gandalf the White who has returned from death, declaring himself, revealing his, his full power and his full stature. That's where the magic comes in, in that confrontation. So Aragorn here is revealing himself as he has been doing more often. He does it at Helm's Deep. He does it in Theoden's Hall, declaring his name. He does it uh, when he meets Aemir. Declaring his name and, and the name of his sword. Um, this is something that happens more and more. And now the, uh, the great heroes are sort of coming into their own and they're you know, rising to their full stature. This is why Sauron is going to become increasingly uneasy. Yeah. I think Aragorn's reveal more so than Gandalf sounds more like he's, he's kind of talking to himself. Like he's giving himself a bit of a pep talk. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly, yeah, I mean, possibly. I'm not sure how much he needs a pep talk, like whether he's feeling unconfident in himself and trying to boost his own confidence, um, but it is like a kind of reminder. I, I, it makes me think of the comment um, when Boromir is, is kind of throwing a little barb at him in the Council of Elrond, right? And he says, you know, uh, he talks about the, how the sword that was broken would be a great a great help to Gondor uh, if the, the hand that wields it has inherited the sinews of the, of the kings of men. Uh, and Aragorn says, who can tell? Right? We'll see about the sinews when the time comes. Right? <laughs> uh, but I don't think that's lack of confidence exactly. But here he is certainly talking very confidently. Gollum and Frodo. So... What are the dynamics of the conversation between Frodo and Gollum like? When Gollum is being taken into Frodo's service. How is this described? And I want to be particularly careful here because the relationship, the depiction... Let's see. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I would guess, and I have no data to support this claim, by the way. This is, this is wild speculation on my part. But I would suspect that of all of the characters in this story uh, whose representation in the films are likeliest to eclipse or influence our reading of those characters in the book, Gollum would be number one. That I think that the greatest danger, uh, when reading Faramir, we're going to be unlikely to be thinking of, I think, probably far less likely, uh, just to be picturing the movie Faramir when we're reading this. Um, since they'll be almost unrecognizable for each other, you'd be unlikely to be making that mistake. But with Gollum, I think it's very likely. And I think that we can... It's, it's, it's a place I want to be particularly on guard because if we're picturing both the film Gollum himself and also, very importantly, the relationship between movie Frodo and movie Gollum when we see... Gollum in the book, and Frodo in the book, um, we're going to miss a lot. 
a lot because there's some huge differences. Though they're not, they don't jump up and shout like the differences between book Faramir and movie Faramir jump up and shout at you. Um, In the books, what cues are we given to understand the relationship between Frodo and Gollum? What's going on in Frodo's head when he is getting Gollum to swear his oath? How is that relationship characterized between Frodo and Gollum in the book? <laughs> after, after my preamble, nobody wants to say anything now. Like, I'm not going to get this question wrong. you got to be kidding me. <laughs> go ahead, Marta. <laughs> oh. Marta, go ahead. Marta and then Jordan, yeah. Um, well, I'll be quick because I'm not even that sure. So, <laughs> I, think, I think they kind of do it as a service to Frodo in the movie in that I think Frodo is much more aware of Gollum's inner workings than the movie kind of lets on. He sympathizes with him, most assuredly. He, he knows what he's feeling better than probably most anyone else. But Frodo also knows. He knows because he sympathizes with him, he knows what Gollum's thinking. And so he... He's, he's just much more aware than Frodo in the movie. Yes, I agree. I agree. Why does Frodo in the movie um, cut Gollum as much slack as he does? Why does he th- think positively even when movie Sam keeps telling him not to, Elise? Because they're playing more upon, like, oh, well, Gollum had the ring, Frodo has the ring, and understands the thing he's going through, and he sympathizes with him, and he tries to see, like, a good creature as So they're playing more on their laziness that Frodo knows that what the ring can do and that Gollum looks like that too to the ring. <clears throat> yes. It's ultimately, to put it in the most cynical possible way, it's ultimately self-interested on Frodo's part. He even, you know, that, that, there's that, that, that moment, which is pretty powerful in the movies, you know, where, where he says, I have to believe he can come back because it has implications for him. He's thinking of himself more than he's thinking of Gollum, really. Um, and that when he sees Gollum, he is projecting himself onto Gollum, but recognizing that, that, that connection. Um, that is not how Book Frodo treats Book Gollum. Right? I'm keeping you late. Not yet what I would call like grievously and irresponsibly late, but uh, already guilt-inducingly late. Uh, so perhaps we will pick up on this with that Caution and preamble. Be thinking about this because it's what I want to spend a big chunk of the beginning of class. As, of course, we will see more, obviously, of this relationship as we go on. Uh, and I want, I want you to be thinking more. What, uh, what is their relationship like in the book, Frodo and Gollum? All right. In addition to a more detailed look at the relationship between Frodo and Gollum, we'll also talk about the marshes and the Black Gate next time. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.